Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Paznia, Paznia, which of course is Serbian for Achtung, Achtung. Yeah, yeah, you know it. Well, here we are, episode 23, and still no sign of language fatigue. We could do Croatian next week, Montenegro in the week after, and Bosnia in the week after that, and guess what? I'd use the same script, because they're all the same language. The Balkans, as complicated as Europe gets. Well, what we could really do with on this podcast, uh, and by the way, we are in my garden here in West London. Uh, it's a beautiful sunny day at the end of the August heatwave. Um, uh, there is the council mowing the park lawn behind. So you may hear the occasional rattle of um, my council tax being frittered. The hum of traffic. <laughs> the hum in of the traffic. Air and on the ground. Yeah, absolutely. So it, this, this is really happening live. We're not in some, some soundproof booth on a boiling hot day. Um, anyway, what we need is a proper, serious book writing history, not a waffling comic. So who's this I spy across the kitchen? Why, it's none other than James Holland, author of the best selling Normandy. 44, available at good and indeed bad bookshops and piled high in airports lately, James. Welcome. Thank you. How is the book doing? Yeah, doing all right, I think. You know, um, it's always a bit kind of exposing having a book out, but um, yeah, no, we're kind of sort of a couple of months in now and um, yeah. They want you to write another one. Yeah, Sicily. (laughs) Brilliant, excellent. Well, like mafia stuff. Now, 80 years ago today, on September the 10th, 1939, if you're listening on day one of our release, that is, two momentous things happened. Firstly, the Canadians declared war. 
And in a moment, James will explain why it took them a week to join in. And also on this day, the British lost their first submarine, HMS Oxley, sunk off the coast of Norway, sadly by another British submarine, HMS Triton. But British submariners, as we've discussed, yeah. did get a bit better in the war. Yeah, that is the truth is, is the phony war is often seen as the phony war because, because the army... Um, uh, uh, lobbing turnips at each other because they haven't got any hand grenades in, in France and yes. all that sort of stuff. But the Navy are, the Navy are getting busy. Yeah, they're getting on right it. From the word go. They're right from the word go. And because after all, the plan is to blockade. Churchill's yep. back. Winston is back, signals the fleet to itself. Yes, exactly. Uh, um, the uh, Athena is sunk on day one. Yeah. Uh, the, the, tr- the, uh, um, the liner going across the Atlantic. Yep. Um, and Battle of the um, River Plate isn't far off, is it? No, it's not at the end of the year, but yeah, it's a few months down the line. But, we- but yes, it's all, you know. First forest. I mean, you know, the naval war is not a phony war at all. No, and it, and a proper assertion of, of royal naval dominance right at the start with things yeah. like plate. Where you, you, no, sorry, you're not coming down to the South Atlantic. Yes, and it actually and it actually exposes the fatal flaw of the Z plan, which is the German pre-war rebuilding of the Kriegsmarine of the German Navy. And what they do is they focus, although they're planning to build um, a large number of U-boats, actually the focus is on, on prestigious battleships, prestigious surface fleet. Yeah, yeah. which is pointless because of course for that to be effective first of all they've got to get through the blockade which is not going to be easy because it's blockaded by the Royal Navy which is the world's largest and secondly you really need overseas bases from which to refuel and, and, yeah. and revittle yeah. um, and of course they can't do that because they haven't got any because they were taken away in nineteen but even, but even when they end up later in the war with those overseas bases they don't do what the, what the Royal Navy did as its habit for whenever you were in port you refueled yep. and the Bismarck of course Goes to Brest, doesn't refuel, runs out of fuel, yeah. goes to the bottom. Schoolboy error, and that's because Schoolboy they're kind error. of inexperienced surface fleet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and they've lost all that what they did know from the kind of First World War. Anyway. Um, but yes, Canada. So Canada takes a little bit of time. But I mean, you know, they're dominions. It's, it's the dominions of the British Empire. Um, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. Uh, Australians are straight, are straight in, but they have, a, in. they have a government who say, well, we're British to our bootstraps, English to our bootstraps, whatever he says, and... and, and which, of course, doesn't pan out well for him politically at home in the end. No. But the Australians come straight in. The, the, everyone, the South Africans definitely are and are because they, they've got their own internal political problem of, yep. of there are people who, who are Boer South Africans who, for some reason, don't really um, like the British Empire that much. Unfortunately, uh, Jan Smuts does now. Yeah, and Smuts has... Yes, Smuts has Having been on the, the side light. of the Boers in the Anglo-Boer War, yeah, he's, yeah. he's come round to the other side. Yeah, so you've got, you've got all the complexity of the different countries. And Canada, Canada, of course, have got their own... They've got their own issues with the, with the French Canadian population and and what to do about them and whether you can conscript and because the Canadians don't get round don't don't they, bo- never, have they never get round to cons- no. conscription no no no, no. It's uh, and it's interesting difficult. of course that they're exposed because of the uh, the Atlantic supply lines yeah. and I think what really stiffens their resolve is is those early forays and sinkings and yeah. things and the, the, the Fenia is a is you know. Uh, certainly kind of puts the jitters up people particularly yeah. in Canada and they think holy moly because I think the Fina was heading for Canada yeah. rather than the United States uh, and and you know that's, that makes them think oh hang on a minute you know actually we are yeah. in this whether we like it or not and so I think declaring war is seen as a kind of sort of uh, a natural sort of follow through really. Other 10th of September so um, what's happening in, the, in, the, in Burma on the 10th of September? 
Good, it's 1944. Well, yeah. obviously, in 44, the, for instance. Yeah, in 1944. Well, they're, they're kind of moving south into, into Burma, aren't they? The British yep. 14th Army, Anglo Indian 14th Army, I should say. Um, yeah, they're moving into Burma following the, the great victory of Imphal. So they're capitalizing and, on Imphal. And, yeah, they're and pushing they, forward and waiting for instructions, really, yeah. you know, because the British are going, well, hang on, we don't really want you to go back into Burma and do this huge invasion again. Yeah. Uh, and Slim is thinking, well, you know, I've just smashed a, the Japanese 15th Army. You know, we need to kind of exploit the success. You know, how are we going to do it? Um, so that all that's going on. Um, and and the, then the, in Italy, you've got the assaults on the Gothic line. Right. Um, so, uh, and a, a thing that, in fact, my dad brought my attention to this because he's been looking into it, is the, the Germano. So, yes. So uh, Ox and Bucks, which is my, my sort of family connection to that, they fight a battle in Germano and they're, they are so smashed up by it, basically the, the, one of the, their battalion is, I can't remember which one it is, is dissolved after yep. the, because it's a, it's a village within reach of naval, naval bombardment, isn't it? They, yes. It's on a, on a ridge on the Gothic line and they, the British send a reconnaissance up, think there's a battalion there, there's a brigade there of um, Austrian mountain troops, if That's I'm right. right. It's a super... Burns Jäger. Yeah, Burns Jäger. And, 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 and so and we're, we're overlooking the Po Valley. So the idea is you unlock the Po Valley by taking this yeah, so, 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 yeah, yeah, itself is not yeah. overlooking... It's actually, it's, um, it's, it's not overlooking the the Po Valley at that stage. So it's so what you've got is you've got the, the Apennines creep up the leg of Italy and yep. kind of sort of veer kind of westwards in this big arc. But the mountains sort of run right down to the Adriatic coast. Yep. And, and it's it's kind of sort of... Um, Sort of around Ravenna, that that it yeah. starts to kind of ease into the Po, po yeah. Valley, and suddenly that's the kind of flat bit before you get to, before you get to the, the foothills of the Alps, and so that's the great goal is to get there because the moment the Allies can get into the Po Valley, it's obviously a lot flatter and it's much easier to use your your huge material advantage yeah. in, in mechanisation, but in the mountains it's much more difficult. Um, and Oliver Lees is the commander of the Eighth Army. The yep. Fifth Army is attacking in the centre of the Gothic line. Yep. Um, and Eighth Army is attacking on the Adriatic side. So having been side by side for Monte Cassino and the Battle of Cassino, Operation Diadem, the fall of Rome, back in May, uh, very early June 1944, they then switch and make the switch across. And Lee's dispositions are really, really weird and make no military sense whatsoever. I mean, he's, he's basically promoted above his capabilities right. as, a, as an army commander. So he's a corps commander, really. At, at absolute best. Right. Um, um, and he makes this very odd decision. And actually, I, 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 I read a book some years ago about the last year of the war in Italy and actually decided to focus on Germano because I thought it was a really interesting case. It was one of those ones where it was a tiny little Italian village which should, on the face of it, have kind of just... The war should have completely bypassed it. But because of this change of access of advance that Lee does and his weird dispositions, and I can't quite remember the absolute details of it, but it's, it's, it's where he puts his armoured divisions compared to where yeah. he puts his infantry and all the rest of it. Um, suddenly, Germano comes on the, on the front line and the typhoon of steel just goes straight through Germano and this little peaceful village in the kind of foothills of... Uh, of of the Apennines overlooking the Adriatic Sea just gets absolutely obliterated. obliterated. And I was trying to find someone, a witness, an Italian civilian witness, um, who 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 lived through this, and we couldn't find any through our kind of sort of um, ANPI sources, which is the kind of national partisan yeah. organisation. Um, so eventually we thought, well, let's just go up to Germano and see what's what and have a look around and everything. Well, anyway, we got there, kind of needed a pit stop, went for a cup of coffee. There was an 
elderly bloke sitting in the coffee shop. We started chatting to him. Turns out he was kind of 10 years old, 12 years old when it came. Could remember absolutely everything. Bloody hell. And, you know, an hour later... You know, I had my I had my story. It was amazing, and, and you know, it is it is a you know, it's like a lot of these little you know, it's a gopping little village now. Yeah. I mean, you know, it used to be absolutely beautiful. The settings amazing, yeah. but all new buildings because it was just completely it was completely trashed. And Lease was fired, wasn't he? Lease was fired eventually. Yeah, he well actually no, he was sort of promoted. He was promoted. Well, very weirdly. often people got fired upwards. Um, fired upwards, yes, yeah, so <laughs> in an upward trajectory from a yeah. from a four inch mortar uh, <laughs> to Burma, yeah. where he the first thing he did was commit an absolutely just ridiculous faux pas. Yeah. Uh, got on the wrong side of of Bill Slim and effectively sacked him yeah. as 14th Army Commander. Yes. I mean, just absolutely barking and was forced to kind of um, retract. Retract, and then he was absolutely fired yeah. as. Um, but you mentioned you mentioned Rome there because we talked about Rome. Um, Rome came up a couple of weeks ago, I think, and we were, we were talking about yes, because it falls on the fourth of June. Because it's the fourth of June, and it's seen as a sort of upstaging of D Day by some, and or ignored because of D Day by others, and Clark's reputation. He should have encircled the Germans and destroyed them rather than gone for Rome as a big political target. So we talk about yeah, we talked about it in relation to Paris because taking these capital cities is obviously very very. It's very sort of politically significant in terms yeah. of a knockout political battle. Yes, as a knockout blow. But but well, the whole point the, the Germans, Rome should the Germans have been get, a really easy victory. Well, and the, the Germans get away. In. Yeah. So so it's it's really interesting because this all goes back to Operation Diadem, which is the is Alexander's battle plan. General Alexander, as he is then, uh, or is he Field Marshal by that stage? He's Field Marshal. He's yeah. Field Marshal Alexander of, of, of Earl Alexander of Tunis. Uh, and he is um, commander of the Allied armies in Italy. So he's the Army Group Commander. Yep. It's Fifth Army, which is predominantly American, but with some British divisions in it. Yep. Um, and Eighth Army. I mean, the interesting thing about the Allied armies in Italy, there's something like 23 different nationalities yep. fighting in it, which we've talked about the Brazilians. Well, and, and, and it had been reorganised, because a lot of people get drawn down to go right. back to Britain yep. for, the, for, for D-Day. And what, what one has to understand is that although compared to the Germans, you know, the, the Allied armies in Italy are fantastically well equipped with, yeah. with, with, with machinery and, and air power and all the rest of it. Compared to what they're building up for in Normandy, it's very much the poor relation and it's yeah. got the dregs and all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, Diadem is a, is a brilliantly planned battle and although the plan doesn't work out exactly as they anticipate it will, the net result is far greater than they initially expect it to be, because basically what they're up against is two armies against two armies. Yeah. So you've got the German 10th Army, which is the dominant one, and then you've got the German 14th Army as well, which is in reserve. It's the 10th Army which is basically facing off a casino. Yeah. And the plan for Diadem is to completely destroy the right flank of the, um, of the 10th Army and force the... Um, 14th and remainder of the 10th and 14th Army back to the Pisa-Rimini line, which is yeah. effectively the Gothic line, the yeah. next major um, um, defensive position that the Germans have in Italy. And obviously capture Rome and attrit the Germans as much as you possibly can yeah. in the process of, of, of this defeat. What ends up happening is that 10th Army is, is very, very badly mauled, but not completely annihilated. But the 14th Army is, to all intents and purposes, completely destroyed, which was not on the original right. task at all. So actually, the net result is better than anticipated, yeah. and they do get to Rome. Yeah. Where the criticism has come is that 
uh, Mark Clark was all out for his own glory and put his own glory ahead of military good sense, didn't do what Alexander said and go straight across to Valmontoni, which is this, this little town on the Via Casalina Highway yeah. one, which, which leads from Casino up the Liri Valley yeah. to Rome. Yeah. Um, and instead turns on the Auburn Hills, faces off 14th Army and go, tries to get into Rome the back door. And this is all about Mark Clark. The thing about Mark Clark is, is there is absolutely no question that he was uh, had an arrogance about him. There is no question that he had a vanity about him, um, and there is no question that he wanted to get uh, Rome for Fifth Army. But I would argue that none of those things necessarily mean he was a bad general. And there's lots of vain and well, arrogant we've talked, generals. We've, as talked, we've talked, talked about before. this an awful lot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But but the interesting thing about it is, by the, the where the whole diadem battle plan goes awry is it is anticipated that. The main thrust will be done by 8th Army going down the Liri Valley with the Via Casalina as its access. On their left, they've got the FEC, the French Expeditionary Corps. Yeah. And on the left of them, they've got US 2 Corps. So the idea is that the 8th Army will punch through. The French and the American 2 Corps will be on their flank, sort of a bit behind. And at a certain point... There'll be the breakout from, from 5th Corps, US 5th Corps, from yeah. Anjo Beachhead, will then trap the bulk of 10th Army in this, this kind Pocket. of encirclement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What actually happens is that the French and 2 Corps get way ahead of the 8th Army and push them up. So the 10th Army has already been pushed over to the east. Okay. So what is interesting is in the final play out, not a single German soldier retreats down the Via Casalina. They actually retreat down routes way further to the east. Okay. So Clark's point is, yes, I'll go to Valmontoni, but Valmontoni is not going to trap the 10th Army because it's played out differently. On the other hand, to go all out to Valmontoni, I am then cutting, cutting across directly in front of 14th, the German 14th Army arrayed along the Caesar Line, yeah. which is running kind of roughly east, uh, west to east, just to the south, about 15 miles south of Rome. And he says that's just insane. And Mark Clark is, like a lot of Americans, is a broad front kind of guy yeah, yeah. rather than a kind of Schwerpunkt kind yeah. of guy. So he turns his forces to face off 14th Army. And a lot of his commanders go, that's insane. Why don't we just go all, all out for, for, Via Casale- uh, for Val Antoni? Then we can turn left at the Via Casalina and that can be our access and we'll get into Rome quicker. And they're probably right. But Clark just thinks, I don't like this whole kind of crossing across the, these German flanks. I'm going to turn in. He then so gets he, into a slugging match. Yeah. And then suddenly this gap is discovered around Monte Artemisio um, and the town of Velletri. Uh, where there is just a gap in the line of 14th Army, the German 14th Army. And he's managed to exploit that with the 36th Texan Division and get through. And then the whole thing unfolds, and that's how they're able to destroy the 14th Army. So what he's trying to do is tidy... He's trying to tidy the battle up by... The, the Germans have deployed in an unexpected way, so he's facing up to them to tie them down, to engage them, to write them down. He's basically doing what the overall plan has asked him to do and, uh, and adapted to circumstance. Yes, and he has so he has all these different contingencies yeah. which he's already war-gamed beforehand. And Alexander keeps going to him, well that's great, but don't forget to go all out for Valmontoni. Right. But of course this is before the battle happens, and this yeah, is yeah. in the ex- expectation yeah. that this is going to be the crucial thrust, driving out of Cisterna and out of Anzio towards Valmontoni and trapping the vast bulk of yeah. 10th Army. But by the time that the breakout from Anzio happens... There. They're not there anymore. They're not there, there anymore. anymore. So you can't... And, and so, so he, he so he engages and ties them down where he finds them rather than where the plan exactly. tells him to. And militarily, what he does, I think, makes a huge amount of sense. 
The narrative, though, that has been pursued ever since is that Mark Clark was a total bastard, was doing two fingers up at the British yeah. and trying to snub them and, you know, failed in what Alexander, Alexander did. And Raleigh Trevelyan, in his book on this, says, as a quote from Harold Macmillan, Harold Macmillan was the British War Cabinet member who was based in Italy. Yeah. And he was really, really good. He was like bezies with Alexander. Yeah. They really were thick as thieves. They talked mm. to each other every single day. And according to Raleigh Trevelyan, who interviewed him in the 60s or 70s or whenever, Harold Macmillan said, I've never seen Alex so angry in my entire life as he was when he learned that Mark Clark wasn't going all out for Valmontoni. The interesting, and this has been repeated Anthony forever by subsequent historians, including by Anthony Beaver in his, in his big book on the Second World War and all the rest of it. The point is, is that I then wrote to Raleigh Trevelyan and said, said, when did Harold Macmillan say this? Because in your book, you don't source that quote. And he said, oh, well, it's obviously it's a long time ago and I can't quite remember, but, but um, I had a conversation with him and that's what he said. And I said, OK, well, that's just interesting because you didn't actually source it. So I then went back to all the diaries of all the main players involved. And Harold Macmillan kept a very, very detailed diary at the time. And he doesn't mention Alexander being in a strop at all right. at the time. Uh, General Harding, who is um, Alexander's chief of staff, doesn't mention it either. and just goes, the battle's gone according to plan. It's all gone fantastically well. We're thrilled with the Americans. Oliver Lease, who absolutely hates Mark Clark's guts, and, and he's just only too happy to stick the knife in at every available opportunity. He says, I've got to hand it to the Americans. They've done a bloody good job. Kirkman, who is the 13th Corps commander, doesn't mention it. says, you know, Americans have done really, really well. So no one at the time is quibbling. So where's this come from? It's come from resentment of eight farmy junior officers who later on in life have written books about it because they're pissed off because Italy got relegated to second thing and they're just looking to kind of, you know, get off their chest, their kind of general pissed offness about how the Italian campaign was fought and how... The le- you know, the legacy of it. And I think that's where it derives with, with a good old bit of good old-fashioned Americophobia. coming to deal with that really sick burn you just delivered there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and it is really, really interesting. You know, yeah. and, and once you... Act, and it's one of these classic things where you have the myth and then once you deconstruct it and actually get into the nitty-gritty and look at the contemporary sources on this, you find quite a different picture emerges. And when I was looking into this, I had no axe to grind or, you know, I went at it as neutral as I possibly could. I didn't particularly, you know, have any, uh, you know, I wasn't out to kind it's of... It's not your you know, quarrel. It wasn't my quarrel. Um, but I, it was very, very interesting reading all Mark Clark's day-to-day diaries, which he kept... And, and his letters back to his wife and all the rest of it. And, and they just reveal a very, very interesting character. And all his anxiety about 8th Army beating 5th Army to, uh, to Rome is all before the battle begins. The moment the battle starts, it all stops because he can see that that's not going to be a problem because 8th Army are way behind. Yeah. And there is this rivalry building up which Lee absolutely fans the, fans the flames of just by winding him up. He just can't yeah. resist it. And what, he, what Clark says is, and famously he says, I'm going to shoot any British soldier that comes yeah. into Rome. He doesn't. He says, I'm going to, you know, I, I don't want any British, I don't want any 8th Army soldiers in that, which is not the same thing at all because, of course, there's British troops within Rome, within 5th yeah. Army, yeah. who are in Rome, and he's only too happy about that. Ah. And the big point is that the other thing is that Clark, because of his elevated position, knows exactly what is going on and knows that Italy is about to be relegated. And he also knows that he lives in a media age and and that actually it's really, really important for the American public to get behind the Italian campaign. Mm. And the best way to do that is to have pictures of the commanding army 
the army commander in front of signs of Roma and, and to have this sold as a kind of big American triumph. From a media point of view, that is really fantastic PR at a strategic level as well. Were the mafia involved? <laughs> Not in this instance. <laughs> right, time for a short break, or as the Bosnians would say, Vidibu se oscuro. Well, welcome back. Next week's show will be the first of nine daily podcasts marking the 75th anniversary of Operation Market Garden. A pod too far. Any listeners with questions, stories or connections to the extraordinary story of Arnhem, Nijmegen, Eindhoven, 30 Corps or any other aspect of the battle, please do get in touch using the hashtag WeHaveWays on Twitter or by email to WeHaveWaysPodcast at gmail.com. So it's WeHaveWaysPodcast, as one word, at gmail.com. Right, so we've some questions. This comes from someone calling themselves Avro Vulcan 617 <laughs> which of course is the Vulcan... Is that red that, and white? <laughs> that's the Vulcan that did the, uh, the Port Stanley attack. Yes. Morning, Al, and congrats to you on you and James for We Have Ways. What... Oh, yeah, I mean, there's a strong start. What are your thoughts on the phenomenon seen over Germany and Japan called Foo Fighters? It was the famous band. Um, the Germans and Japs thought it was an Allied secret weapon and we and the Americans thought it was an Axis weapon. I mean, basically, it's people seeing strange things in aeroplanes yep. high up in the sky at disorienting speeds. I was, yes. I was kind of think, yeah, yeah, you, you know, I mean, we're not equipped to fly at twenty thousand feet at three hundred miles an hour. Our brains aren't actually hardwired for that experience, are they? So, I'm, I'm never surprised that people see things when they're up in the sky and light playing tricks through perspex and yeah, so now those far and yeah, and all, like that. all stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, because the, the Germans did have experimental bonkers things like the oh ME163 yeah. and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, also which is which uh, for those who don't know is a, was a is a rocket plane that looks like a sort of squashed dart yes and it's sort of it's fueled by propellant it's yes, not, it's but, not but got a jet engine something peroxide that's right yes yeah, so <laughs> it's one of those it's like a it's a rocket engine so it's it's basically one element meets the other element and they explode violently and <laughs> and off you go yeah. and they, and it had a little sled so uh, yeah. the, the aeroplane, and it really does look, it, it looks like a sort of, it looks like a bat or a squash yes. dart. I mean, you look at it and you think, I'm not getting in that. Jesus yeah. Christ, yeah. right? And, but it could re- reach very, very high speeds. It can only fly for about eight minutes or something. Eight minutes, it'll go straight up. Yeah. Straight up really, really fast. Uh, drop its sled as it took off. And then uh, the idea was they'd come down, attack a bomber force, because they had a cannon in the nose or something. Yep. Attack the bomb, American bombers. And then you'd you'd try and land it. I mean, it, with no fuel. With so you no have fuel. to you have to you have to glide. Your engine has to cut that. Yes, it's basically in. a rocket pad glider. Yep. And absolutely uh, bonkers. Bonkers. And I, you think of the time, the effort, the uh, expenditure, the po- the poor pilot. I mean, it's yeah. Didn't Winkle did Winkle Brown fly one? Yeah, yeah, he did. He, he flew. He, I mean, he did after the end of the war. He he um, Eric Winkle Brown, of course, legendary test pilot. Um, yeah, he went. Um, he he did a tour of, of Germany, going to all the uh, experimental works, Peenemünde and yeah. the like, um, and, and basically just trying all the ones that he possibly could, and interviewing top Luftwaffe types and, and scientists and all the rest of it, uh, and trying all these. And, and what's really interesting is a lot of these kind of um, airframes then do kind of winkle their way into, uh, no pun intended, into into British aircraft design post-war yeah. and these jets and stuff. But it's absolutely incredible. They also don't forget that the Germans have also developed loads and loads of um, uh, ground-to-air missiles as yes. well. So it's not just V1s and V2s that they're developing. That's 
a whole host of other ones as well. These are hurtling up into the uh, sky at kind of stupid yep. speed. So I'm sure all these are the sort of things that are contributing to the kind of rumours of the Foo Fighters. And they, did they not have an air-to-air fly-by-wire um, missile thing? That, I mean, the, gosh, yeah, maybe. I yeah, don't the, know. The, they, because they, they, they were, they were, the, both sides were pushing this envelope, and, and the, you know, the Allies have the proximity fuse, of course, which is yes. which goes off when it's near something, as yeah. the name would suggest. Yeah. And, and they are pushing it all. They are, all the technology is being pushed the entire time. And, and I mean, obviously, so often with the Germans, you look at it and you think you're spending a lot of effort on a bright idea here that, that might not work. Yeah, it almost certainly won't. It almost certainly won't. I mean, the ME163 wasn't a particularly effective fighter plane, was it? No, not at all, no. I mean, no, because, because what you've got is you've, got an, you've got an element of something which is really exciting and, potential, and has a huge amount of potential, but it hasn't been given the research and development time it requires yeah. because of the... Time pressure and time pressure of the war. You're losing the war, and you're losing war exactly. (laughs) Um, And and that's sort of that's the problem. It's also the problem of their jet program. I mean, the jet engines they develop, the UMO is not a very good jet engine because it hasn't got enough of the right parts because they're running out of resources. Well, they haven't got the they they can't get the metals for the blades, can they? No, no. So they have a real problem with blade failure, with the metallurgy in the blades keeps failing. And the ME two six two, they get something like eight hours out of the engine maximum. I think it might be a tiny bit more than that, but it's, it's but really it's not, not, not very it's much. It's not much. No. And, of course, they, they're, they're extremely vulnerable taking off and landing. So, yeah. in the end, the Allies don't bother trying to dogfight them. They wait for them to land, don't they, and then shoot them down. But, but but the Foo Fighters, I mean, you know, one of the things, this is this is sort of, you know, UFOs as well. Yes. Little sort of, well, you yes, know, so around, so, you know. Yeah, we're uh, avoiding the Nazi flying saucer here, aren't we? Well, well yeah. It's, 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 there's, a very, there's a very shadowy figure, SS, a, a very leading SS engineer called Hans Kammler. No one knows quite what happened to him. And it's one of the sort of great un, untold mysteries. Uh, and, and he was certainly doing all sorts of wacky, um, weird research um, projects. And one of the ones that he was definitely looking into, there's absolutely no doubt about this, was the hunt for zero point which is yeah. you know where you create this this force field where there's no gravity and if you've got no gravity obviously you can do whatever you like and there are, there is speculation that uh, that somewhere in a forest in in you know in the Czech you know in Czechoslovakia um, he was you know he'd cracked it or almost cracked it and that apparently some video of or some film footage of this experiment going on where they have actually created it and this was then squirreled away to the US which is where you get area whatever it is down in Arizona yeah, 51 and, uh, yeah whatever yeah. it is yeah uh, um, and it's probably all bonkers but but it, but it is really interesting and I think that's where a lot of this kind of UFO stuff come, comes from and Foo Fighters are all kind of linked yeah. into that but I didn't know about Japanese ones I've got to say mm. I, I don't know about Japanese Japanese Foo Fighters I, I yeah. thought it was just a German one but I'm happy to be corrected on that and one and it's Foo for fire isn't it it's, it means fur it's, it's something to do with Yes, because uh, the whole point was that there's they, this, this bright light, bright, bright and, it, light and it seems yeah. like a little orb that's kind of hurtling yeah. towards you And yeah. but, they, but no one ever seems to have been shot down by a Foo Fighter it just seems to be a... a what if they were? They never lived to tell the tale, of course. Confirmation bias there. <laughs> yes. Right, there you go. David Yields says, Love the show. Just listen to your episode discussing memoirs. Have either of you read Spike Milligan's memoirs? A great insight to the average Tommy for all, that it, for all that he made it hilarious. Well, yes, I'm an enormous fan of these books. And, uh, and and literally the best title of a book ever. Oh well, yeah. Hitler, uh, my part in his downfall. Yeah, yeah. Just, uh, just... Uh, well, Rommel, his part in my downfall. And, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, just really uh, funny. Uh, they are... Really fantastic. You look at you look at Milligan's experience. So he's so he's conscripted, um, uh, and it starts off. We were, the, the Neville Chamberlain on the radio says we declared that we were at war with Germany. I wasn't so keen on the we is what he says, <laughs> right? And he doesn't go. According to his memoir, he didn't he didn't go, and he sort of avoided it for a bit because he didn't like the idea at all. 
and he wanted to play trumpet and and his book his, his memoirs of his being a teenager basically he plays trumpet in bands and he does a lot of he does a lot of athletics and stuff and uh be, being a comic and and basically changing the entire face of British comedy is not on his mind at that point so he's conscripted goes into the artillery and then he's part of the he's in Bexel on sea waiting for the invasion and there's a great story about he sees a German plane he throws a brick at it and the plane crashes and he shouts I hope you crash those brick at it and crashes he goes well strike one to Milligan but he does all stuff about how they, they they've got this the old first world war artillery pieces and they shout bang because they don't have any ammunition to drill with and he paints a he paints a pretty, um, I mean, it's all, you know, it's, and it's all uh, japes with his mates, which are really, really interesting, and his friendships, and the friendships he forms, and how important they are to him, and, and how, they, how their friendships and the banter and all that is the thing that sort of keeps them going, which is really, 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 really interesting. I mean, I actually think, kind of, if they weren't written by Spike Milligan, they might, they might be taken more seriously as a sort of a first person account of, of what, what it was like being a gunner in the Second World War and then he goes to Tunisia and he, the, the account of sailing to Tunisia on the boat is, is fascinating and the thing that always strikes me about it and I think it ties in with the thing you talk about a lot is they at no point at no point in, in his memoirs does Milligan complain that he's hungry right Everywhere he goes, he's extremely well... He doesn't like a lot of the food, but there's plenty of it. And there's a Christmas dinner they have, I think, in Tunisia before they sail for Italy, which is ridiculous. And you read about it, and it's all this plum pudding. And, and you think, here is... like, And it's all served up as a comic memoir. Here is an eyewitness account of a bloke right at the bottom, literally, of the, of the army food chain. He's a, you know, he's a gunner in the artillery. And this is his life, and this is what it's like, and this is how well vittled they are, and actually how well looked after they are. Because the, the fascinating bit when he loses his... When he, when he goes into combat fatigue, and he, you know, and he goes on about, I went mad, I went do lally. He talks, talks about it like that. He's sent down... To, to forward observe and he loses his nerve and, and they've got a new commanding officer and the commanding officer is, doesn't, he doesn't like and they don't like each other and he, this major is not sympathetic this battery commander is not sympathetic to Milligan at all and because Milligan's kind of like the court jester in the, the outfit and he doesn't want the, the new CO doesn't want that and they, they have a personality clash and his view on battle fatigue is well then it's your own, it's your own fault because you're a time waster and you're not serious about any of this but his evacuation, his rehabilitation, you know, the, you get the whole thing. They get him out and they get him to sleep. They, get him, they give him a pill and he sleeps for a day and a half and all this sort of stuff, which is what you read about, which is what you read about how, how they approach battle fatigue and uh, combat fatigue. And what, what they decide to do is you get people rested, you get them shaved, you get them showered in a forward area. You don't, you don't take them back. But then they realise that Milligan's too far gone. And he ends up in this house in Italy with loads of other loonies, as he calls them, with... with, with Harry Seacombe, of course, and they form a former loose concert party. And, and the basic idea is the army's well, look, you amuse yourselves because we can't really, we can't really, we can't send you forward anymore. Your, your nerve's gone, but that's okay. And they're well looked after, and, and they go around entertaining the troops. And it, they're, they're such an interesting. I mean, they're hilarious, and he, there's no doubt that there's some there's some hindsight at work, and there's no doubt that he's clearly jazzed up some of the conversations as he puts yeah. it but they are absolutely fascinating and, and this you know, is this is a seed isn't it yeah 
And then, yeah, and, and this, of course, then of course he comes out of the army and he still pals with Seacom. and Co. And, you know, he says Seacom does this amazing turn where he, sh- where, well, basically, when he first meets Harry Seacom, he watches him shave and he thinks, how is this man ever allowed in the armed forces? Like, because he, he's going to kill himself with a razor blade. He's so dangerous <laughs> with a razor blade. <laughs> and then there's the whole thing, the, the mili- the Seacom's act is to go, at one point, is he goes on and he shaves, like, really sort of ridiculously. And that's his turn. And then, they, they, and they, but, they, but the army grants them this space to live like yep. this. And, we always think of the 40s, I think, as the olden days when people didn't understand psychology the way yeah, we yeah, do yeah. and they didn't understand... But actually, this reveals that they're, they're, they're a lot more on it than... Yeah, really, really, really on it. And they are Well, actually, and also, of- at the end of the Second World War, all those guys that have been released from the prison war camp, they recognise the fact that the worst thing you can do is just shove them straight back home. Yeah. You know, they need to decompress. And decompression yeah. is such a big part, important thing of people who are coming out of Afghanistan recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, well, but I know that's lots something... of comics who've done, who've done the decompression gig in Cyprus where you... Every... Yes. every, every you, do they have, I think it's 48 hours or 24 hours in Cyprus yeah. where they basically... I did that when I came back yeah, from they, out of where Afghanistan. Well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Fascinating. And do you know what? It's such a long time ago since I read those books. Well, that, and, and I, would, I, I, I just well, you know what? I, what I'd like time, to do, James, what I'd like us to do yeah. is I'll pick one and I'll read through it and I go, so when he's on the marath line, what's going on in the big picture? And what's going on in the particular? Okay. And then we'll say, and Milligan says, this is happening to him. Is, is that right? Is that possible? Yeah. Is he where the map says he ought to be or is he somewhere yeah, else? Yeah, is he, what's he remember? Right. Because he goes Tunisia, Sicily, Italy. Yes. And in a heavy gun battery, so with a, with a, with a, their counter battery fire, they experience quite a lot of and, and all that sort of thing. So I remember a lot more about the Italian one though. I, I've read them both. I can't remember anything about the Tunisian one. Yeah, and the first army stuff. You know, and there's all this stuff about we are first army, and I can't remember what the yeah. all the banter is. But they're, they're shipped to you know to, to Tunisia. I've been all around there. D- it's it's directly. fascinating because, of course, it's, it's you know a lot of the battlefield areas around Tunisia are quite underpopulated. Yeah. So a lot of it's still there. I mean, yeah. you can go to Sidi Nazir, for example, yeah. and and you know the, the old train halt is still there, and you know the landscape is exactly as it yeah. was. It's well, just and his sketches are really, really good. Are really, really interesting. Yeah. Of the locals. Sort of, oh, God, another army coming through. Great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's that. all we got time for today. We will revisit Spike Milligan, I promise, because, uh, I, mean, he, I mean, he means, uh, as a comic, he means an awful lot to me, and, uh, like, and he's such, oh, well, we would definitely such an important that. figure. But I also think as a source of another way of looking at the Second World War from, from sort of the ground up, he's, he's a, an excellent... Though possibly entirely unreliable source. Well, that's all we've got time for today. Just seven more sleeps till the whole Arnold gig gets going. Yep, we'll be back next week with the first of our Market Garden podcasts. I know you all know the story, but come on, it takes a beating, doesn't it? It certainly does. See you next time. Cheerio.